We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And now another episode of Mind Escape. With Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. Oh, there we go. Okay. All right, folks. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have a uh, continuation of episode number 74, uh, Sacred Mushroom Rituals, part two, uh, with author Tom Lane. Tom Lane wrote the book, um, uh, Sacred Mushroom Rituals, uh, Search for the Blood of Quetzalcoatl. Um, And uh, what's going on, Tom? Glad to have you back on here. Well, you asked me to talk about certain type of rituals, and I'll tell you one ritual that is a basic ritual, not only the mushroom ritual, but it also occurred among the Wicholi. And it was a ceremony, sort of like a, a tribal ceremony or group ceremony. Uh, like I'm in groups of people that we consider we have our packs, you know, like of uh, people who are higher fans or followers of Quetzalcoatl. It could be your friends or a large group. But with the Weechol, it was where their shaman would show up in a fire at certain places during the year. But the essence of this in mushroom country was the same in that everybody gathered around a fire, you know, and it was a fire pit. Now, some of this had to do with divination, but the basic thing of, the, of this ceremony was you were given little pieces of twine like hemp rope. Everybody was given pieces in that and you would tie knots in them and uh of course before this ceremony people would have taken the mushroom and taken quite a few mushrooms but when we were starting this ceremony the simplest part of that which i think is the most beautiful was is it would go around say a person in san mateo but real hondo might say well, I came over and stole some of your chickens from your house, and he'd tie a knot and throw it in the fire. And the next guy say, well, I came over and stole a cow from your house. And then there was sexual stuff. I came over and had sex with your wife, you know, and, and knots were tied and thrown in the fire, right? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. That, and when everybody came around, you didn't have to say anything, but it was usually said, and, and people would tie a knot and throw in a fire. Now, you probably in yourself, most people in their childhood have a situation where you think about something you did way back and you really cringe, your body really cringes about it. You maybe something you did in the 12th grade or something that you did when you were 15 or 25 years old, and it was not very kind. It was mean, and you knew you were being a, a jerk, right? Mm-hmm. Or you shouldn't have done something. And some of the things we've done, you know, we can sort of slough off, but there's some that are just way on our mind. We'd like to get rid of them. We'd like to clean them out and clean our psyche. And also with all our friends and everybody, you know, uh, be like, uh, have a rebirth, a redemption from from this, almost like a confession to a Catholic priest, you know? Sure. 
but this is a personal thing within a group, usually in a tribal. So everybody's ties a knot and you sometimes they say and they don't throw it in the fire. And it's almost like you can hear these twines scream when they go in the fire sometimes, but it's a type of a cleansing sort of thing to cleanse uh the air in the community don't you know everybody get on the same wavelength you know right right maybe you and your buddy there in the background you know you could have a fire ceremony and you took one of his headphones one time or something or <laughs> you know he got your case of jack daniels and ran off i'm just kidding i'm, I'm trying i'm trying to be serious though but no, no. You know, good. it's it's a way in this fire ceremony to throw the throw the uh, twine into the fire, and and then you're typically going into a vision and a visionary state. A lot of it is divination, where you're seeing forks in the road and where your character can go. You know, like with me, it was like I was seeing a boat, and I cross this water, and there's different paths you can take, and you have to choose. And it's all like in character. It's a very character sort of thing, you know, because all you are is what your character is, you know, and it's way more important than intellect. I mean, you sure you guys would rather have a guy of great character run the country than say a guy that's super, super intelligent, but is doesn't have good character. You know what I mean? Right. You exactly. Character, you can recognize other people and make good choices. But in this ceremony, it's it's one of cleansing that's a very simple ceremony but i think anybody could do with mushrooms with a few friends you know just to tie a knot and throw it in there handles and local flowers around you know and what you're trying to do is just push the reset button no absolutely um now what as far as when you when you're you said um the mushrooms that you guys use were uh psilocybe uh was it carousalin uh is that right well they're the um, landslide mushrooms the carousalins are very common you know especially uh those those are the one i ate most of the time the most powerful ones i felt by far were the zapotecas uh but the psilocybe or uh kabinskis is just fine so okay. anyway i'm trying to follow what you're saying yeah, no, I was just saying, so those grow in a very specific location, though. We said sugarcane fields or, or something along those lines. Um, you were mentioning well, a something. a lot of them, and I've talked to Alan Rockefeller about this because he's really the expert on Mexican mushrooms. He's, he's the uh, guru now. He knows more than any other 10 people on the planet. And uh, he stays down there every year research. And basically what he says is, after hurricanes or big storms, you know, when you have the landslides, mm -hmm. yeah. you'll see a lot of these. That's what the word derumbe, derumbe mm -hmm. means there's been a landslide, you know, the earth has slid. And I think that's why, to some extent, I saw these in the graveyard in San Agustin La Cicha because they were like in these swampy grounds, like dirt, like you see people buried in old westerns, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where it's an oval mound of dirt and uh the zapotecas grow like that the carousalins i'm not sure about some of the others but they they like uh bare dirt bare earth gotcha and the others grow on sugarcane but got bagasse too you know the way some sugarcane 
Yeah, but you were mentioning too. I think you mentioned something about how the uh, Caruslans would they have a higher level of silicon in them than no, that's uh, Zapoteca. The Zapotecas oh, Zapoteca. have way more silicon than either, and it's like as soon as you touch them, they don't turn purple; they turn jet black. Mm-hmm. And I know this sounds like I'm crazy again, but when we were trying in at the graveyards in San Augustine, when we were go- about to touch the. Uh, Caruslans, I mean, they literally grew right up to, I mean, the Zapotecas, they grew right up to the grave. We were in the grass looking for them when this young California girl pointed, they were poking right up through the dirt of these brujos. And just as you get close to them, they started actually dancing on their stipes. It was amazing. They started moving back and forth. And just as I got really close, almost, I don't know if I touched them or not, they changed from a cafe color to jet black. Wow. You you may think the normal person would be uh, weirded out by this, but you got to realize, to me, like uh, Hillbilly from Tennessee, it was like, oh, I found the apples. <laughs> it wasn't any different than, than somebody finding an apple, you know? I mean, there, there's a whole long story behind the graveyard in Saint, and they call these the crown of thorns. The reason that is the power, and very few Indians would eat them because when you take those mushrooms, it's like, getting shot out of a rocket. I mean, it is, uh, uh, they act immediately. I mean, you don't walk more than 15, 20 feet and it's like, boom. (laughs) And, uh, they're different. I don't know about a lot of different types in the world. I've had Mexicana, Caruslans, uh, lots and lots of, uh, Celospi cabensis. But to me, it's when the Quetzalcoatl comes, when you enter that portal, it's a matter of the respect and awe for going through the portals. That's what it's all about. It, it, you know, and here's another thing. In the mountains where I lived, there were Amanita mascaras all over, all over the Sierra Nevadas around uh, uh, San Jose del Pacifico, but none of the Indians used them. They just didn't consider them uh, bastante or something they sh- could use. And like at that time, I didn't know much about them. So if the if Corandero Brujo said, you know, I mean, the Corandero said not to use them, I wouldn't. When I was hiking the Appalachian Trail in 2016, when I knew a lot about them, I would eat the caps sometimes to gain energy to keep going. You know, it's like taking a little bit of a, you know, amphetamine just to eat the cap. Yeah, but yeah, the, uh, uh, I've never been a big fan of Amanita mascara, and I've heard some incredible stories, especially in '78 with Watson about that. But yeah, because he wrote uh, Soma, right? The um, about the uh, right. But it, just to touch on the Amanita mascara, yeah, they are different. Most people think you can't. Most you're not supposed to just eat them. You're supposed to eat. Well, them. there's two different types of drugs in them. I think muscimol and indole, and I don't know yeah, a whole mu- lot about them. But from muscimol is like I a, can gather. Yeah, muscimol is like a hypnotic hallucinogenic. It's um, probably closer to like a blue lotus kind of a thing. It's uh, when you activate it, it's people get like drowsy. Um, they were actually trying to synthesize muscimol to turn it into like a, a sleeping pill, almost like an Ambien type thing, but people were having psychedelic reactions to it. So well, you can to, heat it up. Right. You're supposed to, you're supposed to bake you them. eliminate one of the two chemicals. Right. The most amazing story to me was, uh, in 1978, it could have been 79, but I think it's 78. My friend David, who I'm not supposed to give his second name, and uh, 
by the way, I'm taking his picture out of that book. The, the ones will be different, but the next, but uh, when we went to a psychedelic conference, it was even mentioned in the book, uh, Storm in Heaven. They said okay. all the usual suspects were there. Well, there were actually MK Ultra people there. There were CIA people. There were people there. But Albert Hoffman was there. Watson was there. Schultes was there. Tim Plowman was there. Jonathan Ott was there. And there must have been, a. I think Andrew Weil was there. And uh, may have been Weston Labar. I'm not sure. But about 50 or 60 people went. But the big event of the thing is Watson brought this woman Kianokwe from the Ojibwe. And I have a lot of cassettes of this. You know, I, I, they, they had, you know how they had cassettes back then. That's ancient technology, right? Yeah. Well, she gave these incredible stories about Watson presented her. He came out, presented her, called the Norman woman of the North winds. Well, the only place I think you can read about her, there was a story and Fungi Magazine, but the guy who wrote it was a real jerk. He he was an anti-Wasson people, and he quoted people that have been found to try to besmirch the whole uh, ethnogenic history. And uh, But the, this woman to, told these incredible fairy tales about from their tribes. You know, these were all along the Canadian uh American border and so many of these Indians have changed their na native names like the Winnebago's now are called the huts or something because they don't like being named after an airstream or something, you know? <laughs> right. You know, I mean, and it gets confusing to me because when I'm talking to people, a lot of these names have changed now, but supposedly a lot of these Indians used them and she's told stories of amazing feats like when crops had to be gathered or a dock had to be gathered, the Indians would gather together and eat these. And it sounded like the berserkers, the Vikings, you know, that they just knew how to mix this baby with some stuff and they just went berserk and physical effort to build a dock mm -hmm. or to uh, harvest crops or if a person was really injured or something, and she told incredible uh, fairy tales. Now, remember, this was in 78, right? Yeah. And everybody yeah. thought Watson was going to come out with a book about this. And uh, this beautiful story, she came out. I mean, she must have spent four hours up on the stage, including the time with Watson. She came back. She told these incredible fairy stories. I mean, fairy tales about the Amanita Mascara and everything. And then when I saw Watson in, uh, I think it's 85 at his home, I said, where's the book about Kia? I've been waiting for that book. You know, I've been writing, but I didn't want to mention it or anything. I said, I'm, what, where's the book? What's the thing? And she says, well, she told me not to write a book. We had decided, uh, he was a very honorable person. I just kept thinking to myself, man, if I'd put all that effort in anything, I don't know if I would have honored that, but he decided to honor her and not write the book. Mm -hmm. Now, supposedly, and I've looked into the archives at Harvard, and I don't want to say a whole lot about it, uh, but the book will come out in 2026. Oh, yeah. You uh, mentioned that that one um, 
it was in Watson or Watson's will or his last stuff that released this book a certain amount of years after I passed, something along those lines, if I remember from your book. Supposedly some people got in and took stuff out of his garage. I don't know, but most everything he had was he got sent to Harvard and the guy was uh, unbelievable. Every letter he just about wrote to somebody or something he wrote, they wrote to him, he made copies of it and people would send him stuff related to that issue. My main thing when I was in there was the first time I saw Wasson and Schultz, Schultz, Richard Schultes and Hoffman, uh, I went up to him directly to talk to him. Part of them, I wanted Schultes and Hoffman to autograph their famous book, Botany and Chemistry of Elucigens, which is still the most unbelievable book. And But well, the first thing I asked Wasson when I was up there, because I knew absolutely nothing about him when I was in Mexico. When I got back, I started researching this at a local college and I found out about the magazine 1957, right? Mm -hmm. Or 55, 57, I guess. Well, anyway, I'd seen these and read these Carlos Castaneda books and it doesn't make any sense to me. This was insane. I'd seen people taking doctoras in Mexico that go nuts. I mean, they turn into a werewolf. I mean, a Jekyll Hyde sort of thing. Like uh, some of the brujos I with were warming about people. We'd see people that had, had taken this stuff internally and you go through a whole Jekyll Hyde thing, your hair raises. I mean, these people lose their sanity. They're in rooms, you know, what I'm talking about in the wilderness, talking to people that aren't even there and some crazy Americans would do this, would come out and think their wife was a deer or their best friend and they were a wolf. I mean, this is terrible stuff. And Castaneda was telling people to take this and take this internally. He deserves a place in hell for this. And the smoke, smoking mushrooms, I never heard of that nonsense. So the first thing I go up to Watson and Schultes, you know, and I'm a pretty abrupt person because they were standing there alone and I said, hey, I'd like to talk to you about a few things. And I said, Dr. Wasson, and I was looking at Schultes and Hoffman, I said, uh, is Carlos Castaneda and this stuff, is this real? And he, and he looked at me and he said, Don Juan is real, but Castaneda definitely isn't real. And both Schultes and uh, Hoffman, you know, gave that nod of the head that they were in total agreement. And one of the things when I went to Harvard and got permission from his daughter, Masha, because he had sent me his last book after he died, and I have that letter in my book. And uh, I mean, I could have spent two months there going through his file. This character kept everything, you know, and he's very meticulous, like a gentleman of the old school, you know, a real gentleman. Well, I, I went in a lot of the Castaneda files, and that's where I found some letters he was sending back and forth to Castaneda. And I mentioned one of them in my book that was proved to me that Castaneda was a total fake. Of course, there's all sorts of stuff written about people that expose him and the whole UCLA department. But the number one was when he's, he, uh, Watson asked him, how the hell did you get those mushrooms up in the desert? You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And Castaneda replied that it was either Don Juan or whoever said that he could command them to grow in the ground. Well, right there, that was the most insane thing. This is not sorcery. Do you understand the mushrooms are not sorcery? You can't command anything. Right. These are living entities that have their, they could be friends with you and the people in this world will be friends, but you're not going to command them to do anything. 
And there's some great videos. Uh, one of them is called The Serpent, the Sun, about a curandero of the hills with tobacco in uh, near Mexico City. And he had apprenticed with, uh, back with Maria Sabina's son. And he has this apprentice he's training, and he sends him to Mexico, I mean, to Waltla for training. It's only about five minutes of the film. It's really great to see Maria Sabina's granddaughter. But, I mean, it was like, this, this is an insane thing. If you're going to command some plant to grow somewhere, uh, spirit plants don't work like that. And they also, you can't choose to be a shaman or a curandero or a curandero. They choose the people, they, the plants themselves choose. They open it to people they have an affinity to, and they're open it as an option, not like, yeah. oh, you have to do this. Now, there have been recorded stories of people that were going to die, and it's seen six or seven regular doctors in the States. And there's was one incredible story about a guy that came there as the last thing. And they said, yeah, you can live, but guess what? Uh, you have to be a, a curandero. And the guy said, well, I don't do that. And they said, that's fine. But the sacred mushroom didn't have a stake in the game. I mean, it's like, they're just giving you information. You choose, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter that much uh, what you choose, but you have to make a choice in your character or make a change in life to, to change. It's, it's a type of divination that just shows you options. You follow what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I'll I mean, tell you about one thing at that conference was really a mind blower. The one of the biggest mind blowers, there were some people from who had been in MK Ultra or the CIA and we knew they were there and they gave a story about a woman who was dying from cancer. She had like, cancer really eating her body up she was given like maybe three or four months to live or something like that and so they gave her the sacred mushroom and like she'd seen a lot of different doctors and they were all saying she doesn't have long to live well, the amazing thing after she took the mushroom the story was she was pregnant and she got in touch with her baby in the womb and the and the baby said I guess it was like two months old or three months old. Said something like, "No, nah, this ain't gonna work. If you die, I can't be born. I want to be born. You have to reverse this. You have to change this. I want to be born." And there was a spiritual something happened. Maybe white blood cells came out. I've tried to look at it scientifically, but the woman totally eradicated her uh, cancer, and the baby was born. And this was because this was about CIA, MK Ultra. They weren't allowed to print this stuff, but it's all on the tapes from that conference in '78. And the, the the interesting thing about it, I thought there was some sort of mental telepathy going on there, you know, between the baby and the mother. But in uh, like 2016, Scientific American, I mentioned it somewhere in my book. They say the the baby and the mother are actually sharing brain cells. There's there's a consciousness between the mother and the baby. Mm -hmm. and how they're communicating together and to me that's why life is su such a spiritual thing and uh yeah the mind's I'm, a powerful uh, thing for sure yeah and if you're ever there when on the mushroom i've been there with live births with seeing babies being born and it's like you could see the the spirit come into the person into the room and everything and uh uh that's when the real 
angels are there. And if you're on the mushrooms, you can see this, you know, and when the baby takes its breath, that's a big thing, the, the breath coming into the baby. And, and as I mentioned before, that's how to, people heal themselves with the sacred mushroom is with their breath and focusing on the three triangles. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, the uh, the conscious mind, subconscious mind, and the body. Um, what was... Um, meeting Albert Hoffman like because most people know obviously that he invented basically LSD but most people don't realize he was, I think he was the first person to th- synthesize psilocin as well um, he seems like a super yeah, uh, uh, Watson got to be friends with him and sent him psilocybin or t- no he took the mushrooms they got the mushrooms there and he was the first one and see this is all the stupid stuff about MK Ultra now Hoffman was a real mild gentleman. I mean, he was really nice. I had him autograph two or three of my books and you know, like I was a fanboy, right? I was one of those groupies of like, you know, this was after all my experiences, but I still was trying to learn what the hell went on when I was in Mexico, you know, what was this all about? Mm-hmm. And so my first thing was seeing this book and later I went to St. Louis and uh, at that time, you couldn't get Russian mushrooms in history. There was only 512 books made, and they were two or $3,000. But I found they had them at the Rare Books Room at St. Louis at Washington University. And I got permission from somehow to Watson or something to copy. Uh, I didn't copy the first version. Now it's online. The whole thing's online. But I copied the uh, second edition, which was edition... He wrote after he, he was, he was ready to complete it. And then he found out about the letter from Mrs. Pike started the whole thing. We see when he first went down there the first couple of trips, nobody knew about any of this, but the whole thing about the CIA, cause I talked about him. Like there was a program about one o'clock at night on TV. It's almost like an art bell thing, you know, like on TV exposing all this stuff the CIA do. That's what they do. They put on one or two o'clock at night so they can't say, hey, you haven't seen this program, you know? Right. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, And uh, all this torture stuff that the CIA did, you know, they all farmed that out into the crazy guy Cheney got in there. I mean, we got torture centers all over the world, but the, but uh, the, the, and I know about them, but the thing of it is, Americans can only sit in the room. We couldn't ask questions or actually do the torturing. The, the Egyptians or the Paraguayans or the Romanians did it. Well, anyway, I'm getting off track here, but uh, so it was natural that the CIA tried to get some people on his trip. They were trying. They were. Tra- everybody was trying to f- find out if they could make uh, a Manchurian candidate. You're familiar with the term a Manchurian candidate. Right, right, right. And you know, yeah, the first the, movie that was made after Kennedy was killed, it was taken out of production. You couldn't see it on TV or anywhere for about 10 or 20 years. Did you know that? No. no. Yeah, the first movie, The Manchurian Candidate, after Kennedy was killed, 
that movie, nobody could see it for about 20 years. Damn. It's crazy. Not the one with Denzel, right? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Later, there was one done with somebody in it. I don't know. Uh, a bunch of movie actors later made one, but I've been by that square in uh, uh, Dallas, and the only thing that amazed me about Oswald and I still can't figure this out because as a hillbilly, me and my buddies used to get guns to shoot, is why he picked an Italian carbine when there were so many other cheap, really good rifles. It's oh, There's a lot about the whole thing doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I we could uh, go into that another time. But let's stay on the uh, the mushroom stuff. I don't want to get too well, far well, off Let there. me tell you about another ritual. You were talking about d different rituals, right? Right. Well, one of the sacred mushroom rituals that's the most mysterious and you can see this in Teotihuacan in Wasson's last book and when I was talking to him about the book it hadn't been printed yet called Persephone's Quest Jonathan Ott wrote a whole chapter about the disembodied eyes of Teotihuacan and I remember I was in a sacred mushroom ceremony with a uh, Curandero, Francisco Ramides, and he was questioning me about why I was eating the mushrooms and everything. And I was really eating like somebody to go out in the, I don't know, the jungle to find something. It was incredible. And he did a thing where he said, like, you really have to have intent. You have to have something you're going to do when you take them. Now, everybody will tell you that it takes a second mushroom. It's like you, you really need to plot a course or what you think you want or you desire to take it. Now, this you may be, say, selling from Florida to Portugal, but you'll end up somehow going from California to Tokyo, right? Right. And you don't get upset about that. But it's the very fact that you had an intent. Well, you have your intent with your conscious mind. And that's playing a huge, huge effect on your unconscious mind. But still, when they all come together, it's it's it can take you anywhere. But in this ceremony, when we were together, he held up a Caruslan's mushroom to me, just like that with the cap toward me. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The cap was actually facing like my third eye or something. And it actually became an eye. It became an eyeball. Were you already under the influence, or was this before you even ate them? I was under the influence, but a very mild influence. I just we had started to eat them, and uh, it was all of a sudden. Uh, it was like an eye watching me. You it's know, crazy. just totally watching me, and. When I would move or look this way, and I realized, boy, I better have a really good reason why I'm eating these mushrooms. I shouldn't be just sit sitting here eating mushrooms because I wanted to find out about some mystery. In other words, I had to have an intent, and it was like that was following all around this uh, actual eyeball. The the mushroom turned into an eyeball. Now I've been in it there's different ceremonies and I write about this in my book about the disembodied eye and the use of uh, some nightshades on the body. But I can't say unlike the deified heart, 
that that disembodied eye will come all the time. But a lot of times in sacred mushroom ceremonies, people experience an eyeball outside themselves, a distant, like at the top of the pyramid and right. dollar bill. Yeah, like our, lo at, our logo. Uh, Tiwatiwakan, some of the temples up there where the chimeras, there's just disembodied eyes all over the place. And like on these stone stellas and other Aztec things, there's a symbol for the disembodied eye. It's a part of the sacred mushroom. And I think some of it has to do with people leaving their bodies or going or seeing themselves outside of their body. And I, I haven't done it myself, but I've seen people send almost like holographic project, projections of themselves and be in a room talking to somebody before they even get there. But the I mean, whole you can thing about this embodied eye is probably the most mystical part of the sacred mushroom veladas. But in that one ceremony, I'll talk about that and how to try to introduce that, like the Curandero did to me, you know, the, the disembodied eye. Yeah, the... Um... The disembodied eye, I mean, you could go take that back all the way to ancient Egypt, you know, the eye of Horus, um, you know, it's actually your hyper hypothalamus part of your brain. Obviously, the Egyptians were pretty keen on carving people open and dissecting people and trying to figure out what was going on. Um, but also, like you said, there's a lot of symbolism. Uh, we actually have the all-seeing eye on our logo at the top of the pyramid, like you mentioned. Um supposedly the all-seeing eye of god um a, a lot of people from trip reports mentioned seeing like a thousand little million eyes looking at them especially dmt trips um so like yeah there's a lot of um and it's weird too because we can't we don't really obviously unless you look in the mirror you're not like staring at your own eyes but i've heard a lot of you know trip reports where people felt like their own eyeballs were staring back at them too which is a weird thing to think about um but have you ever seen more than one eye or was it just that one eye that one time? Usually it was one eye. I've seen, I've seen like I've been out of my body traveling some and I've seen that one eye they're disembodied in the air. Now, one thing I have said, I have researched this sort of stuff because I tend to be a nerd and try to find out what's scientific about it. You know, I have a background in forestry and a master's in science. And uh, one of the things I found out is the piano, piano gland. Am I saying it right? Pineal. Pineal. Okay, pineal gland. Lots of ways to say it. Yeah, yeah there is. Actually, has the same cells in it as the cells in your eye. Mm -hmm. Wow. Actually, has the same cells as the cells in your eyes. It's made up the cells of eyeballs. Not only that, I guess you've heard about DMT and other stuff being there. I don't know. There's a lot of controversy over that. But when a person dies and they take that gland out, the pineal gland. Did I say it right? Yeah, pineal, sure. pineal. Okay. Yeah. And they cut it open. There's these crystals, and if they hit them with hammers, they actually turn it little teeny hammers. Okay. It turned it into uh, clouds of colors. Wow. Now, when they pop these little crystals that are actually in there, they turn into colors. So, and so there seems something to me to be really true within that gland. And it probably some of that stuff had to do with people that were remote viewers, that they could activate that, you know, uh, the mm -hmm. people that were remote viewers. That's just a, a wild guesstimate. But like uh, Hal Putoff, Ingo Swan, Bob Monroe, all those kind of guys. But, yeah, the interesting thing about what you're saying, 
um the the pineal yeah they don't know if you know dmt's produced there or you know goes through there or is maybe that's a <laughs> governor or some sort or something like that because you'd have to probably tap into a live person to figure that out uh, we know it's produced in in, in the brain of rats uh dmt mm-hmm. uh but the thing that about the the pineal gland is, is that it's goes back to our reptilian you know our reptilian brain and reptiles like alligators still have you know i think a, a retina and a lens on on theirs but ours actually regulates our circadian rhythms when it comes to sleeping and stuff too so that's actually whether there's dmt being produced there or not it's actually an important gland in our brain well it seems to me to be important and one thing i write about in my chapter on the physiology of uh the physical aspect of sacred mushrooms is very few humans know that we have what's called a nicotine membrane and when you take the sacred mushroom that pulls back it's at the corner of your eyes now if you see a lizard it's a membrane that covers the lizard's eye it'll, it'll cover dog's eyes because they you know but that nicotine membrane when you take the sacred mushroom it absolutely recedes mm-hmm. And uh, you're able to see in different wavelengths that you can't before because you're actually able to, your pupil gets much wider involuntarily. And you have unbelievable depth of feel in what I call the eagle vision, the vision to see things really far away or unbelievably close up. And I'm sure you've had that in your own experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, you feel, and I feel for me mushrooms has always been something of i like it better than let's say lsd or mescaline or i i just i feel it you can feel it i don't know what it is but you feel free like your body feels free your mind feels free you feel like you've broken some the daily chains of of consciousness and that you're you're able to think so far outside the box that um there is no box you know what i like to say uh you've stepped on and destroyed and burned up the box. (laughs) And if you, you didn't, you didn't step out or think outside the box, you destroy the box. Now, if you go back to Lucius and the, uh, word ecstasy, it comes from the Eleusian ceremonies. You probably know about those. Yeah. The, uh, Greek, uh, mysteries. Yeah. And that's connects to how Wasson, I mean, not Watson, but Hoffman discovered LSD and the whole story about that and the journey to Eleusis that Hoffman, Watson, and uh, Carl Ruck uh, collaborated on. But one of the interesting, there's a lot of interesting uh, things about that uh, particular ceremony. Uh, and what I found the most fascinating was Plato had been there and he'd been there two or three times, but usually you're only allowed to go one time. But his Republic was written based on that, where all the politicians couldn't own anything. If you wanted to be a leader, you were a philosopher, king or woman, you were providing clothing and a house, but you couldn't own anything, which to me is perfect for like how politicians should live. But he also wrote The Cave. And you know, I mentioned in my book, The Cave and The Matrix back and forth, because all The Matrix is, is a modern version of The Cave. Right. Right. And basically, Plato was saying what you were trying to say that, you know, people are captured inside and they see these visions on the wall and they think that's reality. 
Right. And then some people break out of the cave and they go outside, but the real danger is when you go outside and see the real world and all this stuff or what's going on or this alternative world is coming back in and telling anybody about it, you know? Cause yeah, I guess we could do it on a show like this, or I was sitting in a bar with you one-on-one. Uh, but it, you know, you know what I mean? If you make too much noise in public, then you're going to be locked up somewhere, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. what Plato said, the danger of coming back and telling people about their chains and they're in their chains, you know, and some people are happy to be in their chains. And uh, mm-hmm. I never presume to know what's best for anybody. I, it's like I often say the story, you see somebody with uh, no legs or no arms and you say, therefore, the grace of God go out. Well, that's a terrible thing to say for this reason, that that person may be enlightened. Maybe what happened because he lost his arms and legs, he's one of the most enlightened people in the world and really at peace with God and the universe and has no stress at all. Maybe that event happened that I'm just saying, you gotta be very careful about making judgments. But I feel like in the modern world today, we're more captured in the matrix than we've ever been before. Like I talked to David and a lot of my friends about before when I wrote this book, I said, well, people relate to this, these ancient rhythm um, rituals and ceremonies and stuff. Cause, and he seemed to think people were way too red pill today that uh, to use that analogy that there, and a lot of people go straight from being, I mean, blue pilled, I'm sorry, blue pilled. And a lot of people go from being red pill to black pill. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They get very nihilistic. But the sacred mushroom has a connection with nature and beings that are out there really living. That's why I'm talking about if you take it in the day, especially when it's cloudy or and rainy and during the lightning season and you're out in a, a garden or a wilderness and people are being quiet, you will see these beings. You'll see the animism of the plants and you'll see uh, the growth in, and the uh, plants actually uh, ascending power to the sun and power coming back, the energy coming back. This is, it's like being in a sacred choir, you know, uh, praising God for the life form itself. I mean, these are receiving water. They're receiving things of minerals uh, out of the earth and it's in the sunlight. And it's, uh, it's like being in the tree, uh, tree of life you know there was a garden of eden but there was a tree of life at the very center where all four streams came from and when i was in mexico i used to carry this book uh is the only other one i had with me the lord and it's very poetic book it's still i still have this book uh about the only book from that era you know by tony shira and it's still today and it was about the return of quetzalcoatl and i guess reading this book again and again really influenced me but there's this living divinity within the earth and these uh, ancient spirits, female and male, and we're losing the ability to see them. We're getting caught up in the, especially in this digital world. I mean, I was digging up a tree with my son who's a technical expert and he saw all these tree roots and everything. And he said, are those wires? I mean, that's pretty <laughs> crazy. You know, yeah. And I was talking to my wife the other day, and I'll read the newspaper very much. But I happened to see an article. And I turned to uh, 
and I saw a Dear Abby, and you know how things on the right-hand page just hit your eye, you read them whether you want to or not? Mm -hmm. That's a tip for anybody advertising. Put stuff on the right-hand page, it forces people to see it, you know? <laughs> and there's this girl saying, oh, I need to, uh, all my girlfriends say I should talk to this boy, and I should talk to him, and go up and see him because we'd be uh, like boyfriends or something. But dear Abby, I feel like texting because I feel like texting is more me. And I just thought to myself, I didn't have to read anymore what dear Abby would say. I turned my wife, she said, realize this person just said that this cell phone here, just texting was more her than, than a real life belly button to belly button with somebody. You know what I mean? Right. But well, that's, that the, that's the big there, problem. That's the big problem this today. Is the, this is the old breed, the, the sacred mushroom. When you get in these rituals and stuff, this comes out of prehistoric times. I mean, not prehistoric, but this comes out of ancient times. This, these, this the is times like, of the mast, the mastodons, right? No, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm sure that's viral now. <laughs> Watch out now. I thought these <laughs> woolly elephants were coming. <laughs> that's what happens when you get to 72 years old and you can't. I think you're pretty with it, man. I, I think you're pretty lucid. It's, it's, you know, you can tell, well, you know, a lot of information. About these, sure. this, these spirits live in the earth. Talak, all of these things the Aztecs were talking about, and you see these rhythms in the pyramids, and there's portals to go there and get through these portals. And all you have to have is respect. And everybody talks about the little children, the little clown children that you'll see playing outside during the day. They're all your friends. You can't command them. Sometimes if you take yourself too seriously, they'll sort of be jokesters and play like tricks. But there, there's actual, in these angel and, and very feminine spirits of the different plants and, and that are there that you can see them there, during, uh, especially during the rain. Yeah, you know, what, or, or I, mist. I was going to ask you too, what's your, what's your philosophy? I mean, because you mentioned that you were... Um, you know, raised what Christian or Catholic, um, what, what's your philosophy on like God is, do you believe that there is one God? Do you believe that there's just, um, spiritual energy? Do you believe that there's just another dimension? Like what's your beliefs in, in regards to that kind of stuff? Well, I think it very simple. Quetzalcoatl said that God began with time when time began. Okay. And I, I, to me, I don't, I, you know, I think people like Christ and Quetzalcoatl, were tapped into something way advanced of what normal humans will. But with me, the mushroom all involves love and empathy because it, it's a pure embodiment of love that, the, that it touches the body. It comes out of the earth and you're feeling it in your flesh and your body and your flesh becomes alive. And if you want well-being, if you want happiness, you got to get rid of all negative thoughts. You got to get rid of all thoughts of owning stuff, you know, and it's just uh, a type of uh, spirituality that there's nothing that'll ever really be written down in books. There'll, there'll never be uh, chapels or churches because it exists between the people that are taking it and maybe the Curandero who's leading it. and it is a religious event. It is a very religious event, but it's a religious event without walls. It's without uh, dogma. It's without books. And it's 
touching into the clothic underworld for the spirits of uh that exists there these really living things that are there they're not and, and people when they take the sacred mushroom especially during the day they'll see this it's not like you know if it you know like when you take lsd you may see a uh, a coke can floating in the air or a car floating away that doesn't happen these are not hallucinations hallucination is when you're seeing like okay uh, a Coke can floats around in the air or something. These are real live living embodiments of what actually exists in nature, what exists out there now. And we're mm -hmm. making connections to those. And I feel like our ancient ancestors had that ability, especially when they had to have a lot of intuition where they were living in a place. You've got to realize when you live in a place where you're trying to find your food, that food is never guaranteed. Every day you got to find food. Every day you got to get find water. It sounds like a terrible thing, but it makes life really simple. It really makes life simple. But at the same time, you're way more in co connection with nature and the world around you. And it's like breathing and living to you. And the sacred mushroom pulls that world together where it pulls back the mask that separates us from these uh, living beings in nature. And it can go even deeper to that, that where Quetzalcoatl itself can come to, you know, to like heal people. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's what the plume wing jewel serpent is. It's Quetzalcoatl. I talked to Watson about this at his home. And he thought there was a lot of validity in what I said. He thought, I thought he was going to tell me I was off his rocker and I couldn't spend the night that night. And he'd show me out the door, you know. But he really uh, talked to me very, uh intelligently and listen to what i had to say and there's so much i want to show you this one book it's like 11 by 14. now this is the spanish version but it's the same thing in english is actually the former president of mexico uh portillo wrote it and okay. uh this is three people dimitri soda Jose Lopez Portillo and Ferment Infantile about Quetzalcoatl. You'll find hardly any books that have his sayings or what he was taught and teaching people. Just imagine if you would have a book about Christ and they did the opposite of what Thomas Jefferson did. They took out everything he said. Everything he said, they took out, right? Mm -hmm. You'd be pretty upset. Well, Portillo, and th this is the story in all these legends. Well, this book is a very, very spiritual book. And another book that's really incredible. Now you can get that book in Spanish or English. Is this book Burning Waters? Is okay. written by a French woman, uh, Lejeune, and she was the first anthropologist to really start seeing the cosmic spiritual aspect of the Aztecs and the idea of the flesh itself being torn asunder by the mushroom and. Uh, she actually had written this before Watson had came down. And I should say it's more like she was talking about Sochapilli and what he represented. But this this is one of the greatest books that you hear that nobody talks about, you know, the spirituality or anything. And then there's one other book that's amazing. And it's called Library of the World uh, Legends. And uh, can you see that? Yeah. Okay, now if this book is by uh, 
a woman, Irene Nichols. Okay. But amazingly in this book, she goes all into about the uh, deified heart and the symbolism of the deified heart and what this is all about. You can see right here. Um, she talks about you're born with a th physical heart, but with the deified heart, you'll have the, uh, your true face. You see right there, the deified heart. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, very rare places you could see this. And there was a guy Brundage wrote a lot of incredible books. Uh, I sent you right before the thing, uh, show started. I don't know if you have it about uh type of sacred mushroom, the Aztecs used where they covered the body on the body with like uh, rattlesnakes and, uh, ashes of scorpions and rubbed it in with soot from special fires, you know, into the body. Right. There were a lot of, but all the whole cornerstone, of, of Tiwatiwakan and the civilization and the creation of all this came from the Toltec king, who was a man who took the sacred mushroom and taught people about love. And he taught people to quit sacrificing and to quit fighting wars. And the only sacrifice should be flowers or butterflies and to spend your whole life in self-sacrifice to other men and people that you're the idea that you were born uh and you you're just a vagrant on the earth till you find out your your reason for your birth the second day why were you born mm -hmm. and the whole idea was to be a service to people and he taught me all this music he taught all this art he created all these temples and it's in and everything and of course People die, things change. I mean, look, for instance, uh, Christ taught a lot of good stuff. And, you know, I consider him the son of God, just like, you know, that physical energy of, of being God. But look what the Spanish conquistadors brought to the new world. I mean, they brought the demons from hell with them the way they treated the Indians. And, you know, if you go look at the paintings, especially in Guadalajara of Orozco, where he painted those frescoes and everything, it's just incredible what he showed, you know, what went on. And people don't realize how these cultures and people were persecuted and driven underground. Right. What do you think about, um, since we're on uh, so, somewhat of a religious, spiritual portion of the episode, what do you think about like uh, Allegro's, you know, sacred mushroom and the cross and that whole thing about Jesus being a mushroom and Catholicism say, being based off of like a uh, mushroom cult and, and that kind of stuff? Well, it's hard for me to imagine the Amamita Mascara because I don't see anybody in the world doing anything like that today. And uh, I sort of believe like... Uh, Dennis McKenna's brother, Terrence said, who's dead now. Right. If you can't translate the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you aren't a scholar of that rank, then, then you, you shouldn't be saying anything. It's sort of but like me. If I was watching football games and I was a foot fan and then I see a sock uh, lacrosse and I know nothing about lacrosse and, I, and I'm going to be an expert and tell people how it should be played and what should be done. I mean, that's a terrible analogy, but uh, until I'm capable of uh, translating the Dead Sea Scrolls and at that level, 
I have no comment. Now, a lot of the things I see in Brown's book, you know, it to, to me, it doesn't look like uh, mushrooms. For one thing, it looks like topiary. Are you not understand what topiary is? No, what's topiary? The, the Romans created topiary. It's when, if you go to Disney World, they're nuts with it down there. They cut bushes to look like Mickey Mouse or, mm. or Minnie Mouse, right? Gotcha. But, the, but the Romans shaped all these different trees and everything into topiary in their gardens and in, in, in the cities. Well, that came back again in the Renaissance. When the Renaissance came back, the topiary, T-O-P-I-A, or shaping trees and stuff. And some of that looks too much like to me like topiary. Other things are like uh, if you study the early Christians, I'm talking about the Christians writers in about 400 AD and others. These guys were terribly persecuted. I mean, uh, a lot of these people were crucified. This was an age when the Romans like, were really like uh, standing out Christianity, and none of these people were confessing to anything. Are you talking about Plus, Gnosticism? If you look at all the witchcraft trials and the unbelievable torture that witches went through, right? Uh, there was never any confession of mushrooms. There's all sorts of confessions of like uh, using nightshades. I mean, you've heard the story about witches riding broomsticks and what that's all about, right? Uh-huh. I mean, I, I know, I mean, I've heard correlations between the Salem witch trials and like ergot poisoning from. No, the, I'm talking about the witches in Europe. No, I've never. Smear himbane and docturas and stuff on the end of small broom type handles. And okay. they would put up of their anus and twist them around. Jesus. Jesus. That was called <laughs> a sabbat. They would go on a sabbat and uh, you would leave your body. Now, Nightshades rubbed on the arms or different places of your body, I sort of agree with. But if you follow the word lycanthropy, which has to do with whirlwolfism, if you follow it back to the Greece, it came to pe people eating these nightshades. And just like I told you before, they turned into, uh, they went through the Jack Jekyll Hyde, and then they would go after people trying to eat them and stuff. I mean, they're... There was people like that in the mountains of Mexico where I was, and you'd hear them howl at night sometimes. I mean, that sounds crazy. I know right. it sounds absolutely crazy. Uh, but nightshade, can, and, you know, scopalamine was actually what they developed truth serum from. And to the Supreme Court ruled that you couldn't have truth serum because it was something like, uh, I forget the term they used for. Is that si similar to like uh, sodium pentothal? Is that similar? Scopalamine. Yeah, but scopalamine was also used too, and it was used to some extent. They put on people for motion sickness, but like belladonna was used in the eyes. It means beautiful women. Italian women would put it in their eyes so their eyes would dilate. Mm. It's almost as crazy as these women today that stick <laughs> Botox in their lips and stuff. But I agree with you. About you're not going to escape death. And see, this is the reason why. Uh, the ego just doesn't go on because all your ego is, is uh, memories that are being accessed and gone. If you look at it scientifically, there's no way that uh, your personal ego can go on. I believe your etheric body and other things may go on, but, but uh, not your ego, you know, and uh, the body itself, 
is going to die and you're never going to be uh, uh, ready to see Quetzalcoatl till you can face the fact that you won't exist someday. And I think that's why the sacred mushrooms are two reasons I think they're being or psilocybin's being approved today. Number one, all these millionaires and millionaires in Silicon Valley think they can live forever. And they don't understand that life and death are two entwined things, that there, there's no value to life unless you can die. If you can't die, there's no value. That's what gives value to life. You might as well be a, even a stone will erode, okay? But they think they can live forever. And it's just a hilarious joke. But, uh, it's if you go there's a website called reset r-e-s-e-t dot m-e have you heard you know about their website no uh it's reset r-e-s-e-t dot m-e and if you go there and clip on topics they'll show you university work from all over the world well these people are trying to mass produce uh psilocybin now because it's regrowing brain cells and they're showing it regrowing brain cells and dementia and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and you right. know, a lot of people are afraid of getting old and losing their mental capacity. Right. Uh, and that's why I take the mushrooms sometime to re to regenerate all those brain cells in my brain to get me to, uh, thinking more lucidly, but that's one of the biggest reasons because of all these health reasons they're discovering, but the real spiritual aspect of it, they don't see. And I think the other reason this is happening, and this came from when I was hiking the Appalachian Trail, I'd be in the middle of nowhere and come into some little city, you know, mm-hmm. to do my laundry because I'd have to get some food and decontaminate. I mean, I was smelling so bad, even the bears wouldn't come around me, <laughs> you know, if it hadn't rained. And, uh, I'd be in the laundromat and I'd see a local newspaper where five people from that little town were found dead in a car from fentanyl. Wow. Yeah. And you know, I don't know if I sent you that thing. It's hilarious about China trying to get upset about we're legalizing marijuana when they're sending fentanyl all over. Well, if you look at the death rate from the opioids, the, the mm-hmm. Lotus, the fentanyl, the heroin, not even count it's going up at a at a 45 degree rate it's you know it it jumped uh in 2016 it was more than the vietnam war and it's been increasing in over 10,000 a year 65,000 75,000 95,000 100,000 people going to kill themselves and here's the thing i don't give a damn what you do you're never going to deal with it with the conscious mind and deal with it because your body is calling out for stuff and your unconscious mind is like this huge, monstrous thing around you, and you can guard and you can guard. And I've had friends, and the, you know they're they're not going to take the stuff anymore. And then, uh, oh my, you know they'd have to go back to Vietnam because they couldn't get good heroin in Hawaii, or there'd be something like that. Do something stupid like take Xanax or some drug, and then all of a sudden they let down their guard. You just can't keep it up. I mean, you could send somebody to the mountains of Montana or some isolated place like we did our son who was an athlete that got hooked on oxycodone and they're up the mountains, but now it's everywhere and the death rate is going up. Well, you're not going to cure it until you put the three things on the table talking to each other at the same time. You have to have your living intelligent body there and you have to have your unconscious mind wide awake 
in your conscious mind and they and and then it could see what's actually going on and you see uh, you're killing yourself okay you don't want to kill yourself stay on this path or change but you have to have that type of enlightenment and the sacred mushroom will give you that enlightenment it'll it you know they proved all this sort of stuff where it cured prisoners from being prisoners but if you go to reset me you could see all sorts of addictions from and bad stuff people beating their wives or mm -hmm. Uh, addicted to cigarettes, addicted to alcohol, addicted to cocaine, and people just can't break this stuff if if they're in their just their conscious mind. But when they bring all three onto the table, you know, and God and love is there, if their body will teach them, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, you know, and they'll learn from it and quit. And and that's why I think this stuff is going to be legal. And they're trying to make these pills. You know what a psilocybin pill costs? I I know the ketamine nasal spray. That's seven thousand dollars. Yeah, it's super yeah. expensive. And you know what I tell people? You can go out in the cow fields around here and get them for free. And the worst you have to worry about in Florida is a trespassing law because there aren't any laws against mushrooms. Right. And you can get spores and grow your own. Instead of seven thousand dollars, you might end up spending uh, about fifteen to twenty dollars because all you need is is rice. Uh, vermiculite and uh, water, and you just mix it proportionally uh, one part rice, three parts vermiculite, and one part water. Right, and the spores don't have psilocybin in them, you can buy them on the mail. There's a place called Spore Works. I mean, good grief. When I got back from Mexico in the 70s, we had to go through all sorts of lab techniques with auger and everything. And half the time it wouldn't grow. But now if you can get rice and you can grind it in a coffee grinder and brown rice, of course, and you, vermiculite, you can get at any plant store and water comes out of your tap and you, a pressure cooker, and you get this syringes and you just put your needle in a flame and stick it in the middle and whammo, you've got sacred mushrooms in a few weeks. And once that quits growing in the, in the, uh, your jar and growing out, you can take that and go get horse manure or cow manure. We used to go to the police stables and clean out their horse manure. And then we would just put it in there and grow it, you know? Yeah. And it grow, and, and later is amazing. We planted it in the garden, and we thought that was it. We were just going to use it as fertilizer. Poop! It came up one more time out of the ground. I mean, That's uh, fertilizer. but it's like a. I told you about a, a guy I met that just got sick and tired. He'd seen six doctors, and he couldn't cure his cluster headaches. And he had absolutely. So he started reading. He went on the internet. They use that in hospitals to cure cluster headaches. Actually, I get really bad migraines, and I can tell you having done you know not recently but years ago when i had them really bad um you know eating some dried stuff you know not you don't even need a lot you know it could be like a microdose and it'll definitely get rid of your migraine well this guy totally cleared his cluster headaches and there's been story after story of people 100 percent curing them with the mushroom and it's listed medically i mean there's so i mean here's a here's a dried thing it's classified as class one. Right. Okay. Well, that to be class one, you have to say it has absolutely no benefit. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. No benefit whatsoever. Okay. Now 
there have been a lot of trials where the judge says, this is ridiculous. All the people are testifying all these good uses of here's all this university and all this good stuff about the mushroom. But guess what? The judge can't make a determination because the, only the DA can set the classification of a drug. Right. Ridiculous. And the only thing is somebody's on a jury smart enough to know about the fully informed jury. And that's why when I'm in a, on a foreman on a jury and been picked, they're in trouble because a fully informed jury says that the jury and the, the, the prosecutors, the judge won't tell you this, that you could decide whether the law's right or not and make your own decision. And I've been in a case one time where uh, this black woman, her husband was just beating her all up and uh, she got arrested because she beat him up in the house. When the police took her out in the car, she went after him again mm. and everybody wanted to let her off, but she wouldn't. And I just said, look, here's the phone conversation. Here's all this witnesses says beating her. It's natural that she was going to do it. And the judge said we had to convict her. And I said, no, you don't have to convict her. I made up a whole lot of law cases and a lot of stories. So people would feel happy. You know, I said, this was back and such and such, but the fully informed jury can decide. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's important, obviously, is the, the process we're going through now. The only thing I worry about is it being, you know, politicized this way or that way. It should just be, it, I hope it goes the way of marijuana, where it's like each state just starting to, you know, slowly roll over. Well, the, I think that's going to happen because in tourism, because you look, a lot of people are going to Colorado for tourism. The problem I have is I think this industrial grown marijuana is never as good as the stuff that's grown out in nature that's actually grown outside in nature and i had a friend that discovered his phd was on what made marijuana potent and basically it's the closer you are to the equator the more uv light at the time that's where all those little uh thc nodules come up to protect the female and it's pretty obvious but it uh Marijuana is a sacred plant, but I just feel like somehow the government's going to get involved. And also, I would always still buy it illegally, if no matter what. I, I've had two friends that committed suicide because they were just afraid of going to jail. One real old guy and a really good young guy that worked for my solar company. And it really pisses me off. You know, I've been in the clink a couple of times over uh, marijuana and that sort of thing. And, but, you know, that these people, just the terror of being locked up caused them to die. And, and, and I'll resent the hell. And plus the CBD oil, if you don't get the real CBD oil with a lot of THC in it, you're not getting the really powerful stuff. A lot of stuff of what people, there's a guy, I wish you could get him on your show to talk about it, but he's Maybe. really educated me about the real CBD oil with the THC in it and a difference that makes versus this hemp oil that's being sold now. Right. Yeah. Cause you can buy it on Amazon, the hemp oil. You can get it on Amazon now. Well, they're selling uh, pet stores around here. I can go next door. Yeah. And I get nuggets for my dog, you know, <laughs> yes. and I get the oil for myself sometimes cause hemp oil is good for you in certain things. So I'll buy any and, and I'll buy the nuggets. They're really good for old dogs, but, yeah, uh, my girlfriend just got some for her dog. No, I mean, I, I look, there's tremendous. I mean, I know from the, the CBD giving it to kids that have grand mal seizures and them instantly stopping and, you know, helping people sleep, helping people with anxiety. I mean, there's so many uses medically, like you said, it's, it's stupid 
that it's even classified as what it is, but hopefully that's the, the tide looks like it's turning and hopefully well it, here in Florida, see here's here's where the tide is. To buy medical marijuana, you have to pay three hundred dollars for seven months. Mm. Now I can go to my local supplier and buy a lot of pot for that, you know, just say yeah. drop by once a month, you know, so I can cruise in the evening a little bit. I'm not big guy in the marijuana. I don't care a whole lot, right. but I'm not going to pay uh, $300 for seven months. And that's the only way you can get the CBD with the THC. Unless a friend is going to Colorado or a state like California where it's legal and bring you a bunch back, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of people that go out there and they'll bring it back. You know, it's like, uh, it's like when I was in Amsterdam, you know, it was, it, there was amazing places there in Amsterdam where you could, you know, you could get stuff, but, uh, it's starting to be legalized in the United States. And, uh, it's obvious people need it for the CBD oil and the THC, but also people need something other than alcohol to tranquilize them in the evening, you know, and make them, make them get out of the, stress have been in going through during the day you know you read my mind i mean alcohol is just straight poison in my opinion i've never been a big alcohol guy so maybe uh you know i'm biased in that regard i used to drink when we were younger of course to go out and when i turned 21 for a few years would go to the bars and stuff but never really sat well with me i never understood what's the point of going out the night before and then well it's a up. social lubricant if you can limit yourself to one or two and a lot of places now because of legalities, if you go to an open bar or somebody's having an event, they won't give you more than two tickets because of the legal situation. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of women can only take one glass of wine. It's body weight and everything, and you have to know. And uh, But the thing about smoking pot is like the other day, you say, well, does it make you a safer driver or not? I said, well, of course it does. You're only going 15 miles an hour, and you spend an hour <laughs> on a stop sign. <laughs> you know? You got to be you're, safer. I mean, you're totally aware of all your surroundings too. You know, makes what? you very. Said so you're totally aware of all your surroundings too. Well, when you're high, if anything, you're like it makes you. Yeah, it makes you hyper aware too. Like I think it, you know, like that's why people get paranoid is they're not used to that level of awareness on on a regular basis. The people that get freaked out, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I the only time I've ever done it when I drive, if I'm going to drive like six or seven or eight hours, I want something to make time go away. Hey, <laughs> you know what? I want to just pay about. real attention to the road and I got satellite radio. So I'll turn to the old blues channel. Nice. Or some of the really old country channels or bluegrass or something, or maybe every now and then I'll say, Hey, I'm going to turn to and listen to Jimmy Cliff and Reggae or Love I'll turn over to even. Are you a big Jerry Reed guy? You like Jerry Reed? Yeah, some I like some of country. I like the Outlaw Channel. I like the old stuff, you know. I don't care for this modern stuff very much. That's why I like Willie's Channel, which is yeah. 59 and the Outlaw Channel. And I really love the blues channels. I used, I saw a lot of those old blues guys before they died, like Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters. and Nice. You know, yeah. back in the days of the you know, late seventies and early eighties, uh, I was totally into reggae then because we were growing some sensomia back then in Florida. People didn't even know what it was. And, uh, you know, but it still is very tense. People have been arrested for 200, 300 acres. So we only had to grow something about 
20 by 20 because nobody in the East coast even knew what Sensamia was. Yeah. And, uh, I just listened to Jimmy Cliff and, uh, Bob Marley all day. Just, uh, yeah, nice. get you in that mood. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Big, big fans of both those guys. We're Maurice and I are big. We're big dead fans. We love the grateful dead. We love fish. We love all that kind of jam. Band I, I like the grateful dead. I like a lot of their songs and I know there's a real cult. I always like that picture of a bear that's, grabbed a Grateful Dead fan, and he says, well, you know, they always have pot mushrooms and granola on them. Yeah. yeah. Well, the bear the bear is actually based off of Osley. That was what the, the, the Grateful Dead bear is based off of. Osley? Yeah. Yeah, he was the guy I told you about was the first person yeah. yep. to synthesize. Well, we uh, read Electric Kool-Aid. We were at Electric Kool-Aid acid test when we were in high school a few times. So that, that whole, that was the catalyst for maurice and i we're because we're cousins but we went to high school together and we were 16 17 years old we both read electric kool-aid acid test and hunter s thompson and you know all that kind of hunter s thompson actually wrote that and and it was uh who was the guy that actually he took his notes tom wolf well yeah tom Tom wolf took hunter thompson's notes yeah he did he used them for that one chapter for sure yeah i met hunter thompson one time he was a hoot I just read the rum diary, actually. I just literally finished it last night. Yeah, I met him at a fire one time, and it, no, it was at a pond, and he was giving a talk, <laughs> and it's crazy. He passed trash can for drugs. He said, whatever you got, put some of this in for, for me. <laughs> there wasn't but about 50 people around the place, and uh, later I said to him, I said, look, you know, I'm really pissed. Uh, I haven't ever gotten all these flashbacks that promised me. I've been promised all these flashbacks and hadn't gotten them. And I mentioned the hilarious thing he said in the book. He said, well, you need to sue the government and the DAA for false promises. <laughs> yeah, because isn't uh, that he, the he myth? A character and a character in his own right. And that gonzo journalism he invented was incredible. And I know a lot of my friends were big nutcases about Hunter. I read most of his books and saw a lot of his stuff. And he was really unique. Uh, yeah, for sure. But I, I just think he didn't want to live anymore in the world he saw that was coming up. Mm-hmm. yeah that's a good point yeah i mean a lot look a lot of those guys you know they were all for a certain amount of change and, and pushing things in a certain direction and um i think there's only so much you can control you know and and when you're you know when the veil's been lifted and you see what's going on i think some of those guys are just you know they check out or they just go deeper down the rabbit hole or whatever the case may be but uh i don't think hunter had much of a moderation type lifestyle no. either i mean he flew off the handles but you know well people can do that a lot of times but to me the terrible thing about suicide or suicide is not that you're dying but the what ifs of all the friends you leave behind like i had a peyote vision one time uh that i had like wow i can go to the next world i can leave now there's no reason to stay here it was almost like i was going to get up and and go to the next world then i realized whoa i mean something like mescalito and i realized that your death affected you know so many people that it would hurt them right mm-hmm. to me that's a cowardly thing i mean if you're alone and by yourself in your misery you know get a bottle of jack daniels and push your wheelchair off a cliff you know <laughs> and uh go out with style but you know as long as you can you got to value life and uh when you value life you know uh you got to think of all the other people it's like when i was going in the military in those two years in the infantry, I didn't worry at all about being killed. That may sound bizarre. Uh, I worried about being 
an invalid in a VA hospital. But I, the mm -hmm. thing that bothered me more was be my grandmother and mother and father and how they would suffer, you know, yeah, and they yeah. would agonize over, you know, what had happened, you know, no, absolutely. the individual itself, you know, it, life, who knows what's after, uh, death, but, you know, and I've been body surfing in Hawaii. One time I almost died in a riptide and saw my whole life flashing from me. I was ready to die. I just wasn't going to quit. I just kept trying to get to shore. But the thing, the thing that more about taking your own life or something like that is the other, all these other people you're going to hurt. And that's the thing about war and killing all these people. I mean, you're hurting a tremendous number of people, you know, that yeah. all those people had somebody that loved them. They had children, you know. Yeah. Well, it all, it's like kind of what we were talking. It's like a ripple effect, kind of what you were talking about earlier about when you're doing the rituals and you're ingesting the sacred sacred mushroom. You see how everything's intertwined and connected, and we can't see that in our day to day consciousness. So people just assume that it's not there, and by it not being there, um, they start to project things into the world. And like you said, war is terrible because you know, it's not just one person killing themselves, it's somebody being killed by another person. And then the person that kills that person's whole life's affected. Maybe they have PTSD, maybe they have nightmares, you know, and then their whole family's affected, so on, so on, so on. It just goes on and on forever. Um, so yeah, love and empathy and um, you know, these are the important things that we need to to push in society, you know. But uh what before we wrap it up here why don't you talk a little bit about what you th what you have in, in plan you said you're working on a, on another book what what does that book entail or what is that book going to be about well in my book sacred mushroom rituals the uh search for the blood of quetzalcoatl in the last 28 chapters i touch on this and there are groups of people that are followers of quetzalcoatl that do rituals like where I was in Utah four weeks ago in the Goblin Valley Desert. And there's people that do this stuff and what I call the gray people, they really don't be identified at all, you know, and they just come together at certain places and do these rituals to meet Quetzalcoatl. But I really feel like there's a, uh, my next book is a lot more about the sacred ceremony of the deified heart. And I go into a lot like, and I've got to get more pictures. I wanted to show you this in Portillo's book. This is one of the, uh, okay. That's the, the dragon. And that's the initiate in it. Right. And, uh, in his book and overlay, and I need to get some more pictures. These are the stone stellas of Sochimilico. Okay. If you overlay these, you can understand what they're about, right? You know, this overlays on there. Sure. And if you look at these stone cells of Sochimilico like this, there's three of them. They're the three I told you. There were 55 inches that, that were up in the highest palace of Teotihuacan, and the Spanish broke them into three pieces and uh, buried them. They painted them red. That's like considered killing them. Well, they were found in 61. Well, the whole thing is about the sacred ceremony of the deified heart. And I think I sent you a lot of those pictures where you actually see the flower of the blood on the heart. Right, right. And 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 they show the initiation ceremonies and also the Vienna 
Venmo Mesa Codex, page 25. That's all about the sacred mushroom ceremony, the deified heart with Quetzalcoatl and Talak, going to the Valley of the Death with the mushroom, so Chapelli being grateful that he's going to go through this initiation. They show you the mats, the bee with the honey, and all of this thing, and, and this symbolism. See, uh, all of these things were presented as symbolic images of what the ceremony was about. And uh, there's also a lot of these different codexes. They show the mushrooms time and time again. I'm not going to even begin to live long enough to do this stuff. Now, the codex, uh, Vienna or Vimbiosa codex, Mixtech mushroom, page 24, has been just seen by a lot of people. A lot of them get it wrong. Uh, Watson looked at it, uh, first looked at it. DeBerge, who's the one who found all the mushroom stones. The only thing I've really contributed to it was I understood what that black insect was, that that was the honeybee that they were using. Mm. This is all about this sacred ceremony and a ritual of how to take it. This, this book, which was on stucco deer skin and one other, which was about all the different plants and thing with, with a, two books, only two books Montezuma had in his library that the Spanish got off with. But the other, I'm writing more about the Temple of Malenko, but a lot more about a lot of these sacred mushroom ceremonies to be healed. And I'm trying to get a lot of other people to write for my book who have been healers or worked with healing with the sacred mushroom and actually had Quetzalcoatl come and meet Quetzalcoatl and I'll actually have Quetzalcoatl enveloping them and heal them with that pure energy coming out of the earth of, of male, female, life, love, everything. Uh, I want to spread the word on that because I'm, I'm not into like, go ahead and take something at a rave at a party if you want to, or right. you know, that's, I guess that's, you know, I'm not going to poo poo anybody's party, but when you see it as a sacrament, when you have reverence for it, it's going to take you through totally different dimensions. And what I talk about in understanding this is like, let's say you find you're in the, you're, you're like a native, say an Aborigine, but in a modern way, and you find these airplanes you've never seen on an airport before, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I talked to Dennis McKenna, and even he said his brother, they never had any real Curanderos or anybody to train them. They're self-trained. Now, a lot of people have an incredible affinity. Like, for instance, uh, you find the plane. How many people can get in and start it and then take it off and land? Well, right. I feel like some people have an affinity, and they understand it, like maybe Terrence McKenna. And I don't claim to have any special knowledge, but I'm I'm trying to get all these people, different people and doctors and stuff. I've heard I told you about the motorcycle guy being healed. Uh, right. And all sorts of people want to write ster- stories, and I'm going to try to have them in my next book. I may not identify them personally, but I, you know, I'm verifying it by knowing them and actually talking to them about the use of these sacred mushrooms. And I'm also finding a tremendous amount out from friends of mine in Colombia and other places that have, have how the sacred mushrooms were used there in Peru. That's just stories that have never even been written about. 
Right. Because didn't um, well, uh, Gordon Wasson was featured. Was that Life? Uh, the article was introducing psychedelic mushrooms to the world. I forget what year it was. I think we talked about it earlier, 55, 57. I think it was years. 57, May or March of 57. And those were and that, drawings of Roger Heim from the French Museum. He couldn't get American mycologists to go with him. He had to get the one from France, uh, Roger mm -hmm. Heim, who made all those incredible drawings. He got a photographer friend called Alan Richardson to go with him. And he had some other people and see, this was really rugged. When these people were going back in these towns, there weren't even roads in these places. They were having to take donkeys and burros to get back there. Right. There were even dirt uh, roads you could take an old farm truck on. And didn't but, know, uh, Terrence and uh, Dennis, they went down to Columbia. My, the point of what I was saying is Gordon. I think they, I think they ate their mushrooms in Peru. Oh, okay. I thought for, for some reason I thought it was Columbia, but I, I remember the story about how they brought them back and they kind of started sending out, I don't know if it was pamphlets. I forget what it, it was well, in the pages. they book under a false name. Right. Uh, but I'll tell you, way before they did that book, there was an underground doing this. I learned how to do this in 73 in an old house in St. Louis. And I mentioned that book. We filled up the, the, a whole floor uh, growing Slosby Cabensis and turned all sorts of people in on it and gave it to them. And I never, ever sold them a penny. I never even charged them for uh, the jars we were using or anything because I, I was always a felt that money would present bad karma. Mm -hmm. You know, I realized, like, if you go see a Corandero in Mexico or somebody heal you, you ought to offer, offer them some money. But, you know, it's like the American Indians have a website called Don't Pay to Pray. Right. They're really disgusted at all these, uh, what I call woo woo plastic people, mm -hmm. you know, that are disrespecting their customs and claiming to be healers and everything and charging all sorts of money for seminars and stuff. I mean, the power to heal people and come out of the earth, you, I mean, you should respect somebody's time and give them some money and give them something reasonable. These crazy trips and people thinking they're going to be a shaman and wearing all sorts of what I call halloween costumes you know and feathers and stuff like that that's the way it works it so it's basically the comes out of the earth it's the coachella music festival uh, <laughs> uh uniform is, is yeah. what it's what it is um well, but no i a total different thing they don't even go there for the music they just go there right. to show off and be filmed and take selfies yeah, and stuff and it's, promote their brand and yeah yeah it's all it's all bullshit at, at the end of the day um, that's that's sort of like how burning man is degraded i remember burning man was on the beach and uh san francisco and everything and when it first started and everything and i regret that i didn't go there because i know a lot of people made her thing and they've they've stopped a lot of marketing and stuff but now it's become a big thing for people to go there and 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 take a dratted selfie you know it's like you know i don't let people take a selfie with me i don't ever take them i say you know i'll hold the camera and shoot a picture of you you know right <laughs> yeah but uh, a lot of this stuff is so narcissistic. Narciss why nar narcissistic. narcissistic? Yeah. Yeah, that it's just unreal. And, you know, uh, well, that's what our society the whole thing, you know, like I was talking about this girl, you know, with the phone. There's a thing called nonophobia now. And when this tell your cell phone rings, that sets off pleasant endorphins in your mind that somebody's mm -hmm. going to 
contact you and see you and oh good uh and if you look at it, it's crazy you know boys will play video games on it or terribly they'll go to porn sites but they show young girls it's like their whole social life is in there i, I mean that's unbelievable to me that these young girls uh commit suicide or do terrible things because somebody said something on that was basically this crazy little thing that all came out of pentagon technology you know yeah right well me and michael deal and with that on a daily basis is, yeah i mean i i'm, you know, I'm, like, I'm guilty Huxley's last book. did you hear the book island you ever heard of that book i've actually you mentioned it in your book i have not read it but I, i'll add it to my it was the last book before he read and as far as the novel it's a terrible novel oh, but okay. as far as the idea and the concept <laughs> it was like this island where you know, all the world wanted their oil and they wanted their resources and their timber and the people wouldn't do it. And part of the ceremony at the end of the year, when people graduated from high school, they took them up on a mountain to a temple to see a sunset and they all ate mushrooms, you know, mm -hmm. and the Islanders would eat these sacred mushrooms at the end of the ceremony. And the whole idea was the type in a sort of way of having autotarchy, which is, I'm not, I'm not pronouncing it right, but where you try to be self-sufficient and keep everything from being ripped off and maybe use a little bit of the minerals, you use some of the trees, but you try to do everything in a balance, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we're we're definitely tipping those, those scales nowadays, but um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I appreciate you coming on. Your your book's obviously uh, refreshing in, in this day and age because of everything we just finished on with all social media yeah. stuff and the attitudes towards, you know, I'd rather text than talk and rather talk than talk to somebody face-to-face, -face, that kind of thing. Um, so I think that your book, um, you know, I, I, the way I look at it is, you did a good job from an outsider's perspective of explaining the traditions and the ceremonies and um, all that stuff. So I respect all that. And you're, you're, you know, you're not trying to become one of these, you know, shamans yourself. You're just reporting what you've experienced and seen. And, and I appreciate that aspect of it as well. Well, nobody uh, that's a real uh, Cordero or person like uh, really has any of this thing, whatever call themselves a name. That's one thing you don't give yourself a name. Right. Now people in the village or tribal people may say something about you or not, but uh, anybody that deals with a sacred mushroom knows that the number one thing you do not do is claim to possess this power or own it. You can show people where it is. You can get involved. You can see currents in it. Maybe you have the ability to move it, but it doesn't it doesn't belong to you more, any more than a lightning bolt out there does. You know, you sure. see the lightning bolt, you can go to where the lightning bolt is. You see where the energy of the earth is and you start to see in these worlds and everything. But you're just another person that's there, you know, and, and there's some people that have the real infinities. But the second you start claiming or thinking you're something uh, special. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a huge, huge uh, trap. Mm -hmm. And everybody I know that's a real uh, spiritual person that uses the mushroom, not like laying on a couch and listening to Beethoven and taking a pill, but taking it in nature and using it for healing and helping people. For one thing, they're not charging very much at all, just a little bit for their time and to make a living. but you know, nothing like these big tourist things. And secondly, 
when you talk to them about the power of Quetzalcoatl and this stuff and the aspect that they would claim or say, oh, I'm the person that heals or does the healing. It's like, whoa, that right away, they don't, they wouldn't even want to talk to you. And one crazy thing I saw on YouTube was somebody talking about using the sacred mushroom and taking the disease or taking the, what was wrong with the person into themselves. You know, it's almost like a type of exorcism. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I get what you're saying. People, people need to exercise themselves. They can exercise themselves of hate. They can exercise themselves of the bad memories. You know, they, they can realize their love and get, and, and get positive things in their life. But the idea that you're going to take something in of somebody else in your body uh-uh, get away from me. That's that's uh, terrible. No telling what will happen with that. And it's like people want to think or say, oh, you're a guru or you're some expert or uh, give you names and stuff or just because you've had experiences, you know. And that's that's a. Uh, uh, that's something you really got to avoid. And sometimes it's funny. Like when I was in Japan, I'll tell you a funny thing. Uh, a lot of the young Japanese men, they had these t-shirts of Albert Hoffman, you know, riding a bicycle. Mm -hmm. And just because the fact I'd met Albert Hoffman and knew him and had books and buying, they thought somebody special and it was hilarious. Everybody won't come meet me, you know, and talk to me. And I said, I used to laugh. I said, man, all I did was meet the guy and talk to him and respect him and, uh, be polite. And, uh, have good manners. And he talked to me and, and, you know, but, and I know a lot about him. Of course you'd read about somebody that's one of your, uh, heroes of that age or learn what he did to try to learn the truth about everything. But it's just really so funny. Just, just because I've met him and know him and everything. It, it, and I'd be at a bar. People would buy me all oh, over by Yusaki. Tell, tell us about Hoffman. Well, there wasn't right. much to tell other than he was a great man, you know? Do the Japanese people, people have like Jonathan Ott that translated his book that really knew a lot, but you know, he quit going to seminars at the end of his life because he realized that he was just being paraded out there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We got Albert Hoffman coming to our seminar and he's going to talk for 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, that's, that's, that's not, uh, the reality of how anybody's going to learn anything, you know? Right. You can't go to one of these places and listen to somebody for 30 minutes or, or an hour and really learn anything. Did the Japanese uh, people have any indigenous psychedelic ceremonies or have any experience with mushrooms? Or is that something reserved kind of for the West? Well, they had Shinto and they were very much. And I went to some uh, Shinto celebrations where there were Buddhist priests and sort of that sort of thing. And I visited some of the temples, especially the temples in, uh, uh, Kyoto mm -hmm. and, uh, at the museums. And I went to some of these far away temples and, you know, all the stuff that happened with Fujiyama had happened before. Did you know that? No, you mean the they nuclear temples, meltdown? Squid temples and octopus temples, and you know that big wave they show? That's yeah. how sushi became because it's called the sushi wave. It killed all the crops, and they had to learn to eat raw fish. Mm. But Japan, Japan's an incredible place. I mean, like uh, when my wife would sweep the porch, uh, and she'd sweep it off, these crows would look at her and cackle and go get some branches and drop where she had been sweeping. 
but the Japanese just don't steal. Uh, three of my friends uh, went to a sumo match one time, and the crazy woman left her pocketbook and her camera sitting outside the stadium. When she comes back out, it's taped up on the wall. That's nice. That's how it should be. Yeah. Yeah. People leave their suitcases outside of restaurants. Mm-hmm. And one time my wife left her wallet on a bus and the bus is run, but they're very much r- rigid sort of people that never understand. Uh, what's that comedy where you make everything up? Uh, improv. Oh man. That's the Japanese just would never figure out improv. That's just terrible. <laughs> but I see bands there that, that play the Beatles and they play oh, yeah, every single word and you think the Beatles were there, but they couldn't speak English. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, my lot- wife taught in a school for international school for girls, and uh, it'd be funny sometimes because I'd go in Japan, we'd go to a park or a crosswalk, and uh, people wouldn't worry about getting lost because I had a big beard bigger than I was now, and I was much, much taller than everybody in Japan. So it's like they could spot me moving through the crowd, you know? Like Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. It- but uh, uh, the Japanese people, they're not breeding anymore. It's incredible. You know what? You have to maintain a birth rate to break even in a country. You keep your population growing is 2.2. Wow. A lot of European countries are 1.6. The Japanese are 1.1. And these characters live to 100 years old. They're having to bring in Filipinos. You know, the biggest star in Japan right now is actually a holographic figure. Really? Oh, well, I mean- yeah. It's like that. Uh, some of them, the little girls that dance around and do stuff like that, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a uh, Taylor Swift, but she's holographic, and uh, that's crazy. They're into sex with robots and stuff. I mean, it's it's crazy over there. Their population is going down, and they have the most restrictive policy in the world on immigration. It's like even if you marry a Japanese, it's hard to get to be a citizen. Mm. But it's sort of crazy how they are about a lot of things in life, like. Uh, for instance, you'll be with a Japanese gentleman at his house and maybe with his daughter and everything. And he'll look over and ask you, what type of pornography do you like? Yeah, that's weird. Is it a child? You know, like for instance, in, the j- in American jails, they cut out the uh, underwear ads when they give the paper to the newspapers, you know, the women in bras and stuff. In Japan, they, get, they ask people in the prison, what type of pornography do you want? That's crazy. Um, but, but the food is great there. I was in, I was in jail in Japan for smuggling for about three months and I had the best food I ever had in my life. I mean, it was unbelievable. Were they serving Damn. you Wagyu beef in there? <laughs> what? No, so it was mainly a lot of mushrooms and seafood. The best seafood I ever had in my life, better than any seafood of any restaurants I've ever been to in America and incredible mushrooms and stuff. I'd love do they have, do they, there. do they have psychedelic mushrooms that grow on Japan? Do you know? I don't know about that. They they grow so many places in the world. You know, Salaspi cabensis, those seeds can float all around the world in clouds. You know, spores mm-hmm. can go up in clouds and go all around the world and everywhere. And they're pretty much anywhere in the world where there's uh, uh, at least between about 35 degrees north and south of the equator, if you have a somewhat of a... Uh, what we call a subtropical or or humid climate, you know, where you have nights with uh, in the 70s and mm-hmm. days in the upper 80s, and especially where cows go underneath trees or in forests, uh, 
you know, elephants, uh, uh, giraffes, hippopotamuses, almost any animal that has uh, more than one stomach uh, can make these mushrooms. And then there's all sorts of others all over the world people are finding out about. You know, there's an unbelievable poster that uh, Alan Rockefeller has done about 20 different mushrooms in Mexico. Let me see, wait a minute, four times five. Yeah, it'd be about 20 different mushrooms that are in uh, Mexico all over of different wow. types. And some of them aren't as well known as others. And Paul Stamets has written about books about in the Northwest. Uh, yeah, Garakon. I love Paul Stamets' stuff. Yeah, I think he's, uh, it's not just for him, it's not just the psychedelic stuff either. He's all into what can he find that can help you know, heal people. I know he's been working with the big ones, the agaricon that, um, that grows in like old growth forests and stuff like that. Um, that he's trying to, you know, see if he can work out some sort of medicine. I think it was something with like HPV and something else, you know, having some sort of properties to help, you know, heal that. So, well, I know about mushrooms that grow in Vietnam and some of the places in Asia that some of my friends tell me about, and they've brought me back some of this stuff. And some of it's like an in pipe plant, and they tell stories of people living a hundred over a hundred years old, and people that you know personally that lived over a hundred and still have uh, sex with a woman, and there's a child. I mean, incredible stuff or longevity and stuff, but I think the cordyceps, there's really something to that, especially mm -hmm. the cordyceps mushrooms. Uh, those things are unbelievably uh, valuable. They're valuable more than gold over there in, in uh, the cordyceps, and people have started growing them in the United States, and there's a those lot of animals and stuff that are in mushrooms that are very healing, and I'm, yeah, nootropics. I'm just beginning to learn about that. You know, uh, yeah, the whole new nootropic thing, um, people taking them to, you know, help brain activity and, and that kind of stuff. And the, the cordyceps are cool because, you know, don't don't they grow? They they infect the caterpillar and then they explode. I think some of them infect ants, too. Well, what uh, happens is uh, they grow in the caterpillar. And when they're really taken over, the caterpillar comes out of the earth. I guess it's because they're bothered or something. They come out of the earth. And then the uh, mushroom pops out of the body, the caterpillar. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you heard the story last year. It was in the news last year, I think the beginning of last year, of this cicada that ha that was infected by psilocybin. And it, you know what a cicada is, right? Yeah, they, every seven years or the flying. Well, they're different cycles, some seven, some 30, some 40, some 12, who know, different cycles they go right. through and they come out of the ground. And this one cicada was literally just covered with psilocybin. And evidently the guy that was researching it, when he started going through spectral analysis and found out this was psilocybin, you know, mm -hmm. he actually called the DAA because he realized he had a class one drug and he said, <laughs> should I quit this? Am I going to get in trouble? <laughs> you know, he's concerned. We, you know, yeah. he goes through a spectral analysis and find out what this is, and they told him not to worry. Right. But that was all around the grapevine about nine months ago about this. Look it up yourself, cicada. I do. I, I do remember. I, I remember seeing something on Twitter. I remember reading it. I didn't remember the exact details of it, but I, now that you're saying it, I do remember uh, the story briefly. Um, and 
I remember it because it was just such a weird anomaly that they didn't know if it was like a one-off or if it was something that, you know, was occurring that they just didn't, weren't, weren't aware of or. Well, see, some people believe that the uh, psilocybin and the stuff is in the uh, plants or the mushroom to ward off insects or stuff. And I don't believe that. I believe that they're, number one, the mushroom's an animal, closer to an animal, a plant. And it has, and you've read all of Stamets stuff about how it grows in the ground and the biggest living thing is some 250 acres up and all the organ and this mycelium spreads to the roots. Well, one third of all it's intelligent and hopefully it's trying to educate these humans on earth to keep it from destroying the place, you know? Right. Well, I, I think he said one, there yeah, one third of all, one third of all soil, I think he says is either fungus or, um, uh, whatchamacallit it's, it's all, you know, well, you know, like, uh, the Japanese have an incredible subway system. It's just unbelievable how it runs. And they studied how mycelium grows and the networks and everything. And they said, this is perfect. This is like, if you'd laid out a cell, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And see, these things are transferring minerals between plants. And too, they found out that a, some tree way over is getting minerals out of the tree. Right. It's active isotopes and everything, that all this stuff has been transferred around in the forest. And I guess you've heard the stories about uh, when the giraffes start eating certain trees in Africa, the whole message is and when they come to the other trees, they'll put some toxic crystals or things that taste nasty or bitter to the giraffes and they quit eating them and go somewhere else. So that message gets spread through the, through the forest, you know? No, I didn't know that's it. That's interesting. Um, yeah, you can you can read about that where they're actually uh, transferring the fact that they're that these giraffes are chewing on them and eating them up. You know, right? Well, that's just not trees, too. I know with rats, they've done studies, and there's rats that are on completely opposite sides of the world that pick up traits that the other rats are learning on the other side of the world. So there's obviously. I know Rupert Sheldrake, you know, does that kind of, uh, yeah, that, that stuff is way over my head. I listened to him talk about that and everything, but that's pretty, uh, uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, I listened to it and it's, uh, remarkable, but I, I, you know, I, I just consider that a little over my head. It's, uh, it's not in my, my, my pay grade to figure that one sure, out. Sure. Sure. No, yeah, I gotcha. No, it's definitely some very fringe and and not, yeah, i think it's interesting too but a lot of that stuff you know there needs to be more research done obviously to, to figure out what's going on there actually but uh listen tom it's a it's been a pleasure um we'll get you back on in the future and hopefully uh you know we, maybe we can get you back on when your new book comes out or even before that but uh you're a wealth of information and uh we Thanks could sit here on, yeah we could sit here and talk all day um but uh we appreciate you coming on well, that's what I'm good at yakking, you know, like <laughs> I, 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 I used to, you know, train people all the time in uh, solar. And the one thing I try to do in my book and everything is write something with analogies so people understand. You know, I always feel like when you're trying to explain something to somebody, you got to give them analogies that they can relate to. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to do in my book and hopefully some people. And one person I'm going to suggest you really talk to. Uh, and I'll send you an email about him as Thomas Harder. He's on uh, uh, 
uh, Facebook and and Messenger. And this guy was right at the very beginning of CBD oil, and he's just uh, could tell you so much about CBD and cannabis that like he's a walking encyclopedia, and it goes okay. way back to the original sort of that stuff. And he's a big enough nutcase on marijuana and CBD oil as I might be considered on the mushroom. To me, it's like, hey, if I want to have a spiritual advisor on, on cannabis, I'll go like I did to Jamaica and float down the Ocho Rios with a couple of reggae people on a raft and stop along the bank and smoke some spliffs with them and, you know, and mm-hmm. have a good time. To me, that's that's a spiritual aspect. The Jamaicans got it all covered. And, you know, they're starting to legalize mushrooms down there, too, and the Jamaicans are really into psychic yeah. mushrooms. I saw that actually. Saw that uh, Twitter a couple weeks ago. And they're natural. Uh, hey, by the way, just one last tidbit. You know what music they're proving dogs like the best? What reggae? Reggae. <laughs> oh man, all sorts yeah. of music, dogs like reggae the best. Yeah, that they love sense. that. H- harder than all sorts of tidbits like that. You know. No, no, that's awesome. Next time I, uh, I have a cat, but next time I'm at my, du- my dad's house, I'll start, I'll start rocking some uh, reggae for his. He walks in with dreadlocks on. <laughs> yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, thank you for coming on, everybody. Check out uh, uh, Tom's book, Sacred Mushroom Rituals: A Search for the Blood of Quetzalcoatl. Where we have the link below and in the information. Um. And uh, again, Tom, it was a pleasure, and uh, you have a good day. Well, I really appreciate you doing this because I want people to understand uh, this is a sacrament and not that there's any rules or I'm making up any rules, but if you treat something with reverence, you know, you don't worship it, that you can uh, take it and with these portals and that there is a way to actually take it and Quetzalcoatl will come. This is not just a rumor. This is just not... uh, something else it's it's an initiation ceremony and it's a healing ceremony and uh i feel like you guys are getting the word out because my teeny little book you know it it, it doesn't really sell a whole lot you know i mean uh no we'll, we'll, compared we'll to, i hope the audience that you reach yeah we'll get the word out i mean i've already spread it around a little bit but the next couple of days here i'll make sure we get it to uh, all the proper places and we've already had you know couple hundred few hundred views on the first part of the episode and then on the uh the actual podcast platforms it's already i think four or five hundred views so people are listening um, but you guys are the first people i've done a podcast on the air with i've had people talk to me on the telephone yeah i can get you uh we'll i'll get you set up i'll get a, i have a we have a couple other friends that do podcasts i'll i'll reach out to them maybe we can get you on on those guys podcasts too and get the word out but uh yeah i think your book's great i highly recommend it uh, especially anybody that's interested in um you know mesoamerican culture one, one last yeah. little thing uh before i hang up or we hang up uh I generally talk at two mushroom festivals, one in Florida in January that's in Palatka, but this October I'm going to be talking about Quetzalcoatl and also healing with the mushroom two different days. And Alan Rockefeller is going to be there too. He's the expert on these type of mushrooms as far as botanically at the Cave Springs Mushroom Festival up in Cave Springs, Georgia. It's a Georgia mushroom festival in Cave Springs. It's up in Northeast Georgia in uh, October, like 12th and 13th. Okay. Nice.
That sounds sure. good. Uh, but no, it, again, everybody check out his book and, uh, I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your knowledge. And, uh, like I said, we'll get you on here again in the future and, uh, you have a nice day. Cheers. Well, thank you very much. Peace.